You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome and welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Moritz Siebert and I, Niels Kastor-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you're new to the show, let me start by saying welcome with the hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity about systematic trend following as an investment strategy, enough to check out the back catalogue and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed, like last week's episode with Richard where we had a really interesting discussion about where the edge really lies when it comes to trend following. Is it within our models or is it in within the market data? I really think this was a must-listen-to episode, so if you missed it, I invite you to go back and check it out. Let me also quickly give a shout-out to all of you who took the time to leave us a rating and review this week. I read all of them and I post many of them on the website, and I'm very grateful to all of you for helping the podcast continue to grow. Moritz, always be always great to be back with you is what I meant to say. By the way, it's also month end, so that gives us a little bit more to talk about. How are you doing where you are? Great to be back, Niels. Hi, I'm doing really fine. Looking forward to a quick uh, short mountain hike later on this afternoon, weather permitting. We have a little bit of a wet summer here in Europe, as you probably know as well. Looking forward to some warmer weather, to be honest. But other than that, doing fine. Sounds good. Yes, indeed. The weather has been pretty freaky, actually, in many parts of Europe. Anyways, the last week of July, on the other hand, was one of those typical low-volume, quiet summer trading weeks. If you look at yields, the US 10-year note drifted uh, lower by 5 basis points to end at 1.23%. Economic data generally confirmed that the economy continues to expand at an above-trend pace. And we still talk about transitory price hikes, of course. The most anticipated event of the week was the results of the FOMC meeting and the press conference that followed. Unfortunately, Chairman Powell effectively repeated his comments from the previous press conference. One point of clarification, however, is that he does want to begin tapering open market purchases. Actually, he doesn't want to begin tapering open market purchases until the unemployment rate falls closer to where it was before the COVID outbreak. With that, the market-moving monthly unemployment report will, of course, become even maybe a more outsized market indicator. Also, uh, we can be sure that it will be one of those topics will which will continue to come up on the FOMC press conferences going forward. The biggest news of the week arrived Friday morning with St. Louis Fed President Bullard saying that he would like to see the Fed begin tapering open market purchases this fall and end the operation by the end of Q1 2022. That's the most hawkish comment that we've heard from the Fed in ages. As a Fed president, Bullard rotates into the FOMC and is presently not a voter. He will, however, become a voter in January 20, on January 26 on that meeting early next year. And we have to wait and see if he will use that vote against the status quo. However, one may categorize him as kind of a flip-flubber, alternating between hawkish and dovish positions. So with this, we have to wait and see what comes out in about six months' time. But with that statement, he's clearly going against what Chairman Powell said just two days ago. 
Finally, and this has no immediate consequences for the markets, but the Fed's reverse repo operation surpassed $1 trillion this week. While investors don't pay much more than passing attention to this operation, it's another glaring byproduct of the current monetary policy. And that was well expressed in a fun quote I picked up this week from our friend George. He had a quote in his weekly email saying, rule of thumb, if your used car is appreciating in value, there is something very wrong with the monetary system. And I couldn't agree more. I'm not sure sure my car actually appreciates in value, but there we are, Moritz. That's another story. Now, it's a month end, and it's been about a month since we last spoke. What's been going on in in your portfolio, and what are the things you've noticed in the markets? Yeah, trend-following portfolio. I just ran the numbers, Niels, before the recording here. I make 54 basis points positive in July. And by the way, I lost money in June and in May. I'm, I'm up 24.5% year to date. So that's a pretty good number. But July was a bit a bit dull, to be honest. I have to say, I remember starting the month being down, you know, half a percent and being down a percent and, you know, being down half a percent again. And it's only been, you know, the past, I don't know, three trading days, I think, that moved me over into the black ever so slightly with these positive 54 basis points driven by, I think, the bonds predominantly. I got longer some of the bonds, actually. I purchased some three-year Aussie bond futures. I got uh, long the Euribor futures again. So I think that helped. Being long natural gas helped. Coffee came back a little. Copper went a little higher again after a little bit of a pause. So yeah, a little bit back and forth. Not too much really that's exciting in my memory. So 50 basis points up. There you go. Well, 50 basis points is pretty good. I think on our side, our trend following strategy certainly struggled this month, and that was mainly due to the market action that happened around kind of this manic Monday we saw, July 19th, I think it was, where we had this global sell-off in many markets. I think it was based on concerns of this Delta strain of the COVID virus, mm. and maybe we're all going to wear masks again and stay at home. But as I wrote to my clients and prospects that week, I did notice that even Goldman Sachs came out around that time recommending that investors should kind of pass on the buy the dip strategy, which has worked for a long time. So that was interesting. Anyways, markets did calm down, performance improved towards the end of the month, but not enough to bring us into positive territory. If I look at the contributors for the month, we lost money in volatility. That's probably one of the biggest losers. Asian stocks, most fixed income markets didn't work so well. Also, the grain complex were challenging. On the positive side for the month, we saw U.S. equities did well. We had soft commodities, as, as you also just mentioned, and then good old Dr. Copper did okay. My own trend barometer... Uh, I finished at 48, which is kind of a neutral reading, but slightly above uh, average. So I expect that maybe the industry, when we see the final numbers, will be kind of in the range of flat to up 1% or thereabouts for the indices. On the volatility side, as I mentioned, that was much harder for us in July. Again, really driven completely by what happened on that Monday and the following day on Tuesday. There was a big spike in the VIX and that kind of created a perfect storm for our strategy where we initially had to kind of aggressively increase our exposure to volatility during the Monday and then the um, 
And the, given the sharp rebound we saw in the S&P, that created kind of a whipsaw scenario for us losing on both sides. So I think the strategy was down, you know, five or six percent for the month. So that's not a great result, but these things happen, I guess. They do. They do. On my trend-following portfolio model, more closely to Don than to you, unfortunately, this month I was down 1.26% for the month, up 11.77 for the year so far. Performance, interestingly enough, uh, my classical trend-following models lost 2%. My kind of long-biased trend-following models were also down about 80 bips. But then the fast-reacting models were up 1.6%. And that's kind of a good example as to why I think they they have value, because from time to time they can step in and soften the blow a bit on the classical trend models. Sector-wise, bonds and base metals were the best sectors, probably the only positive sectors. And then on the downside, equities, energies, currencies, lost money. Single markets, what did well was the Bund, the US 10-year note, and NASDAQ. But I think that's actually driven by the fact that they, at least the Bund and the 10-year note, are traded by these faster reacting models. And then in the bottom, we find DAX, Australian Spy, and, and crude oil. In terms of trading for this week, we started off buying some Spy, some Bund, some Bubble, and Copper. No trades Tuesday and Wednesday, and then it got stopped out, but with a profit before buying a little bit of Bob on Thursday and finishing the week getting long aluminum and buying a bit of euro, euribor, and also taking another profit on an exit in coffee. In terms of riskiness, the risk increased a little bit from 7.45% last week to 9.91% if all positions got stopped out on Monday. Overall, a pretty quiet week, not very exciting now, we have some great questions. I have to say, if there's another trend that is up, it's the quality of questions we are getting. So that's great. So Henry, Daniel, Stasius, and Jeff have questions coming up in this episode. But I wanted to actually dive into something that came up last week. And I know you mentioned to me, Moritz, that you did listen to the episode. But obviously, and I know exactly what you mean sometimes, the details might escape you. But I, I want to ask you just about sort of the, an overall statement that I spoke with Rich about based on some of their research. And that was that they find, or at least they have an experiment where they found that you could argue that a lot of the edge in the performance that we generate comes from the market data itself, as opposed to perhaps the models. The way that Rich visualized that was by taking essentially market data of a few markets that we discussed. And then he runs a, a few different trend-following models, mainly different in terms of uh, look-back period. And on real market data, these models are profitable. But then he takes the same data and he randomizes that data, and then he runs the same different trend-following models again, and the performance disappears. We talked about that this obviously has something to do with the autocorrelation that we see in the actual data, and this is what creates trends that we can capture. But I think one of the interesting things was that when the when you do the randomization that doesn't seem to work on the models, actually visually, and I think maybe that was also one of the points he just wanted to make, is that visually it can look the same, uh, or almost the same at least, meaning that you can find quote-unquote trends in random data, yet we as trend followers or, or the trend-following systems that we normally would use are not able to cap so well. So I just wanted to hear your 
thoughts on that topic because I think it was a new way of looking at data. It's a new way of looking at how uh, we should look at market selection for our portfolio potentially. So we're always interested to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, Richard's a great guy. It's good to have him on the show. I mean, if you destroy, in air quotes, destroy the data and you take the trends out of that data, then it's kind of like difficult to expect trend following to still work. Maybe you will still see some trends in the randomized data. I'm not sure if the outliers that we so much depend on will still be there to the same extent, though. I'm not sure whether a randomized um, data will produce things such as Bitcoin or Tesla. So I'm not so sure about that. But what I think is is the edge really for us or a, a, a key component of our edge is our trend following trading methodology. One entry, one exit, a stop loss, keeping losses small and letting the winners run. Remind you of the experiment that Tom Basso has made, which I have personally replicated. I still have that on my computer and I can run it. It is to essentially randomize the entries and the entries, right? Flipping a coin, whether you go long or short at any point in time T, but when you have the position on, it's a completely randomized entry. Then you have a stop loss and a trailing stop. And there you have it. That makes money. It doesn't make a stellar amount of money. It's not necessarily the system that I would trade and I don't trade it. I do think there there is you know some alpha in the way that we come up with these entries. But it goes to show that you can essentially randomize your entry methodology and as long as you stick to keeping your losses very small and going with the winners then that makes money so i think that is just the underpinning the greatest underpinning of our success yeah and i completely agree with that i do think that the process of trend following is really important and a large reason why after so many decades we continue to see profits being made from this uh, strategy with that let's jump into some of these questions we have i'm going to start with a question that came in uh, a little while ago but it was meant for you moritz so i've been keeping it it's from henry and henry writes in your episode with moritz so that's last time you were on in episode 147 he mentioned that he had started to run spread trading models on futures markets for diversification. In the past, I did try to find some information online about spread trading futures markets, but I could not find anything useful. They are not popular in the retail trader domain. Personally, I find that it was extremely difficult to find any useful information from books, articles online on spread trading futures markets. Therefore, I haven't been able to successfully build a spread trading futures model. What I wanted to ask is if Moritz can suggest some useful websites or books or research articles or any useful information sources on building futures market spread trading models so I can gain enough information to be able to build a spread trading model by myself. And then he goes on last, can he please kindly talk more about his own spread trading model without giving any of the secret sauce away, of course. How does the model work? What markets does he trade, etc.? Okay, so mm. over to you, yeah. Moritz. Well, that's yeah, a fantastic question. And by the way, I'd like to help as much as I can on that. As you were phrasing the question, Niels, I was looking at my bookshelf and really, I don't see, I mean, of all the trading books I have here, there's not a single one that is specifically talking about spread trading. 
I may be overlooking one, but I, I really don't think that there is much out there. So that is, yeah, for starters, you have the Michael Covell book and trend following. You have a bunch of trading books that speak about systematic diversified trend following and these type of trading strategies. But in terms of spread trading, there isn't, I think, to the best of my knowledge, at least a dedicated book on that. So how did I get into that? It's okay. I heard other people trading spreads. Obviously, when I was working on a bank trading floor, there were spread trades, uh, spread trades going on in the commodity markets. This is where I got started, by the way, with commodity spreads, essentially. I'm not spreading equity indices or rates or anything like that, but it's more like a commodity-centered activity here. And, I, you know, what I did at the very beginning is I looked at time spreads. That's calendar spreads. So in the same market. So what happens if you trade crude versus crude? So December 21 versus December 22, for instance, right? That's the Cal 21, 22 spread. What happens if you do that on the short side? What happens if you do that on the long side? Can you find patterns in the data with respect to seasonality, for instance, the natural gas and some of the grain markets, right, that um, show a certain spread trading behavior? So this is how I got started in that thing. And then it was really, I need to say, my own research into creating these cross-market spreads. So a cross-market spread is a spread that is not, you know, WTI versus WTI. It could be as simple as WTI or, well, simple in air quotes, WTI versus Brent. It's crude oil, but it's not the same type of crude oil. But it could also be crush spreads, spark spreads. It could be completely cross-market in the sense that you would be trading wheat versus soybeans, things like that, substitution spreads, location spreads. And I really, it took me a long time to do the research there because there, it, it has so many dimensions. And I'm live with these spreads since about a year. So it's not an awful lot of time, but since I'm live, I'm really happy to have them on. I'm having a really good time with these spreads. For instance, one that I can mention off the top of my head right now, and it also goes to show a little bit of, shows a little bit the, I don't want to say complexity, but the way I think about these things is when you look at the natural gas markets. So coming back to oil is relatively easy to arbitrage globally because you can put it on a ship. There's floating storage. The floating storage is available. There's not a lot of leakage on the oil when it crosses the Atlantic. So you can essentially move it from point A to point B. You can ship it from the US to Europe, for instance. You can keep it on the open water in a floating storage capacity if the market is in substantial contango as it was one and a half years ago, or even still a year ago. So that is, and, and there's a tanker fleet out there that you can rent. The prices for these ships varies, but they are generally available. Natural gas is a trickier beast. It's a spread that I'm involved in. Why is that? It's because there isn't as much an LNG fleet out there as there is a oil tanker fleet, the leakage that you have on natural gas is substantially greater. It's about, you're losing about 10 basis points of your natural gas capacity on a ship every day. So there's valves on these LNG tankers. So when you do the Atlantic crossing, uh, and that takes, say, 28 days to go from, you know, Louisiana to Rotterdam, you're losing 2.8% of the natural gas that's on the ship. And then you need to factor in liquefaction costs. You know, the gas is under pressure. It's under very high pressure. It's very cold. That's why it's liquid. You need to turn it back into gas. You're losing another 15%. The insurance, the terminal costs, all these type of things. So a, a spread, for instance, that I have on right now is uh, short Henry Hub, so short natural gas, US natural gas, and long TTF, that's European natural gas. And that spread is moving higher and higher and higher, which means TTF is 
substantially more expensive than Henry Hub natural gas in the United States. And why is that? I mean, there's probably a couple of reasons as to why that is. There's the geopolitical dimension with Russia and Nord Stream 2 here in Europe, where Russia essentially wants to force the Europeans to activate that pipeline. The Americans don't want that. But it's looking like that's going to happen. So so Russia isn't sending us a lot of gas right now because they, I think, use that as a leverage, right? They're also not sending it through Ukraine. So they're keeping us really short here. I guess Gazprom, their main gas provider, is exploiting very rationally their commercials and saying, well, if the gas prices are so high as they are right now, then I'm just going to deliver everything that has been contracted for at these high prices. I'm not going to be producing more. I like these high prices. So our storage capacity here isn't where it's supposed to be. We're, we're under normal storage levels here in Europe. And people are getting a bit freaked out about this here because the injection rates should have been much, much higher. And if there is a cold snap, say, in September, October, November, something like that, which can happen, then that could produce some fireworks here in Europe. So Europe is essentially starved of gas, which is why gas prices here are very high. We'd like to buy more gas. But at the same time, there's a very cold winter in Latin America. It snowed yesterday in Brazil. It's very cold in Argentina right now. So they're paying out for gas. They want all the LNG. There has been an outage in the troll fields in Norway. There's a very dry and very hot summer in China. They want all the LNG that they can get. Uh, the economy is booming. You know, electricity demand is high. So, so this is moving these spreads. And as opposed to WTI, the natural gas spread is, isn't as easily arbitrageable because you really have to, you know, create an LNG type of arbitrage dynamic and, and, and move that gas around. So the way I look at that is, and I don't want to go on too long there, but, the, you know, there's, you first need to create an apple-to-apple -apple type of comparison to answer the question between natural gas in the U.S. And, and natural gas here in Europe. And in the U.S. it is 10,000 MMBTUs for Henry Hub, but the TTF contract here in Europe is in megawatt hours. So you first have to translate MMBTUs into megawatt hours or the other way around. There's a physics, physics formula that does that for you. It's essentially, you know, 3.41, I think, is the ratio to convert into megawatt hours. You need to adjust that for different contract sizes. The TTF contract is 720 megawatt hours. The Henry Hub contract obviously isn't. It's 10,000 MMBTUs. You have to factor in the currency because one's priced in euro, the other one's priced in dollars, etc., etc. So I'm creating these type of spreads and I'm very diligent about how I create these time series, essentially factoring in all these things, creating that arbitrage trade, and then waiting for a breakout on that spread. And, and that's what I did. So it got me long TTF and short natural gas. By the way, there's then the question of how do you size that trade? Turns out that if you wanted to do it on a like-for-like -like basis, you would need about four TTF contracts per one natural gas contract, Henry Hub. And what does that do to my portfolio? That does some very interesting things that I like. I would, on an outright basis, I'm long natural gas in the US right now because, you know, it broke the forehandle, I think, earlier this week. It's just moving higher. So yeah, no reason to not be long. But on a spread trading perspective, short natural gas in the US and I'm long TTF. So that reduces my long exposure to natural gas on an outright basis and move some of that risk into the TTF market, which is performing so much more stronger than the natural gas because of the problems that I've just outlined with Russia and you know the, the global economy situation. But not only that, I can also trade that on different parts of the curve, right? So the spread trade, say I can do winter and summer spreads, I can do constant three-month maturity spreads, by the way, that is what I'm doing. So I'm 
I have long and short exposures on different parts of the curve in natural gas and in TTF, natural gas Henry Hub and in TTF that are different to the outright position that I have in either of those two markets. And that creates a dynamic spread trading exposure to my portfolio, which I do in gas, I do in oil, I do in some of the grains, I do in some of the metals. And it's been, I, I think it's going really well. I don't want to get carried away because I'm only live since one year with that stuff, but I'm having a great time with it. And I'm, I'm very happy that I did all the research and all the many, super many hours going into that to figure that stuff out. Sure. I mean, it sounds um, interesting. So just for clarification purposes, that curve you create of the spread, do you apply the same trend following models that you do to just outright prices to that? Or is it different? When on it's that one, exactly the same. I'm not okay. doing it in the same way on all of them, which right. is, but on that one, it's a breakout. It's, it's a breakout okay. of that spread. There's a couple of these other spreads that I put together where the system essentially goes through a variety of combinations. It goes through several combinations, soybean meal versus corn, soybean meal versus wheat, soybean meal versus cocoa, soybean meal, you know, you have all these permutations. And there I'm looking for a certain dynamic in the co-integration behavior. So I'm, a co-integration measure is essentially, you're looking for stationarity in the spread. And if I see that stationarity being violated, so again, that's the trend following type of trading here, right? So that the stationarity breaks down and that co-integration, that spread starts moving one way or the other, but it stops being stationary. Well, then that's a breakout of that spread and I would go long or short. And one of the things that I know you love is sample size. So just our curiosity, when you do things like that, when you get into kind of, as you said, synthetic kind of markets, do you have to, I mean, is there somewhere where you have to kind of give up a little bit of the usual stuff that you would otherwise like to have? For example, I, and I have no idea what I'm talking about here, but do you get the same number of trades in things like that that you would do otherwise to do your analysis? Or is it not as frequent as you would uh, otherwise get? It is some of these spreads where I'm looking for the current integration to break down. They happen less frequent than, say, an outright a trend following trade would happen. On the spreads, as I've, the spreads such as the natural gas that I've just described, where I'm essentially using a breakout methodology, same thing, not just right. not really interf interfering with my sample size from the overall system. I'm getting them with very good regularity. Now, what of course I could do, but what I don't necessarily want to do. Because there's so many permutations available in these spread combinations, you know, so it'll be meal cocoa, so it'll be meal coffee, blah, blah, blah. You do all these type of, I mean, it's thousands of combinations that you can come up with. So you can essentially create your sample size if you wanted to, by just going through all these possible combinations. I want to be a little bit careful with that. When I look at these spreads, I was looking at them and I wanted to find spreads that had some connection to them that I could mm. understand whether I'm 100% correct here or not. I mean, I'm not an expert in soybean meal crushing, right? But I, I know there, there can be substitution spreads in soybean meal. So yeah, I understand that. There can be location spreads in the base metals. So I understand that. So I'm, I'm looking for more of these like things, the markets where there is some relatedness to them in the energy complex and the grains complex and the meats complex. And I don't necessarily want to trade cocoa versus feeder cattle. It could be a trade, it could be a spread trade, but I don't have that as, an, as a combination in my portfolio. 
never say never. I mean, maybe I should just be open-minded about it and, 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 and let it rip and let it run and see what it does. But I haven't done that yet. It reminds me of a conversation that I had with Daniel Crosby, who obviously had written a lot of books about human behavior and psychology and all of that stuff. And he was using an example where where he had found or someone had found that there was like a 95% correlation between potatoes and the S&P or something like that. But he didn't really want to kind of rely on that. But anyway, very interesting Final question from my side. When you talk about your portfolio and your performance that we always do in the beginning, how much would you say of that comes from now these kind of this alternative type of trend following, if I can put it that way? How much would you like to see it kind of, quote unquote, have influence on your trend following portfolio? Do you set aside a certain percentage of risk or do you basically say, no, it's just one of whatever many markets you trade? Yeah, more like the letter. I don't have I don't have a, a target in my mind where I would say that, you know, fifty percent of the risk needs to be in the spreads and fifty percent of the risk needs to be in the outright contracts. It's more like I, I add them to the portfolio and and treat them like an addition to the portfolio, like I would treat an additional market to the portfolio. So that that's how I do that. Maybe there is a smarter way. I'm pretty sure there are smarter ways of going about that, but you know. I mentioned last time, peak complexity is behind me. I'm trying to keep these things as simple and as understandable for my monkey brain to work with. So so this is how I've done that. Perfect. No, I think hopefully that answers definitely the question you had, Henry, and, and a lot more. So I appreciate that. Next question is from Daniel. I believe he's a fellow Australian to Rich. He says, hi, Niels. I enjoyed listening to your podcast with Richard Brennan last week. And it got me thinking part of my belief system is that market type, quote unquote market type, has an impact on the results from your trading system, such as a trend following system, with the obvious example being equities where you would expect a better performance in individual equity positions in an overall bullish or bearish market compared to a sideways market. Tom Basso recently said that his analysis is that the S&P 500 goes sideways two-thirds of the time as an example, so for two-thirds of the time, equity markets probably won't be trending. For a long time, I couldn't reconcile this thinking of market type with the markets that CTA trend followers follow, such as commodities and currencies. Listening to Richard, I think that the inflationary environment could be the proxy for market type. Using something like the direction of government bonds or the relationship between shorter term and longer term government bonds as an indicator of inflationary environment, my question is, is there a quantifiable impact on trends and thus trend following performance of the inflationary environment? My guess is that maybe commodities would have more trends in an inflationary environment and maybe currencies may not be impacted. Has any of the top traders on Plug team done this sort of analysis or is the sample size too small? On a different note, I think it's worth emphasizing that trend following is a misnomer as trends can only be seen in hindsight. You take a position based on a new high or moving average crossover and you hope that after you close out the position that the trend has occurred. All the best. I love your show and look forward to listening each week. Okay, interesting question. I like the question. I have some thoughts, but I want to hear your thoughts first, Moritz, in terms of this impact, in terms of inflationary environments, for example, and so on and so forth. 
So I, I haven't run a regression yet on my trend following trading to uh, realized inflation numbers or inflation expectation numbers. It's just never really interested me that much, to be honest. I can see that if inflation is rising and it's positive, I mean, the environment today is something like that, right? Inflation numbers are not super, super high, but they are positive. Then that creates tailwinds, for instance, the energy markets. We're seeing that and we're riding these trends on the long side. So benefiting from that environment creates tailwinds for copper and base metal. It, to a certain extent, creates those tailwinds for the equity markets. I think up to a point, if inflation becomes too high, then the equity markets will likely suffer from that too. But until that's the case and, you know, Asset prices move higher because the monetary base is expanding. There's just more liquidity, more money in the system. The broad money supply is greater than it used to be. Then that drives asset prices higher. And yeah, we should be able to benefit from our long positioning there. So that is probably an indirect response or an indirect benefit that we get from rising inflation numbers. We're likely to be on the right side of these trends and trades. So I've come across over the last year or so, because of course inflation, as you and I started talking about it, I remember last summer, probably around this time last summer when we saw the first breakouts in some of the commodities, we started talking about, oh, this looks interesting. And off we went to the races for a while at least. Now, since then, obviously the inflation debate has been center in, in, in many conversations and so I've seen a couple of people in our industry do some research on the topic what springs to mind right now is, I think, an article I once came across, I think, by Efficient Capital. And also, I think Quantica has recently done some work on this as well. And from memory, I think that what they find is what they start by doing is they look at performance of, say, bonds and equities and trend following during different time frames where you could describe the environment as being inflationary or reflationary or, or dis, you know deflationary and they start looking at the returns and performance of these asset classes and from memory i think that there is something to there's some evidence that the most consistent performer in all of those three environments actually is trend following I, I think a lot of people don't know that because we're so used to thinking in terms of short-term performance. And of course, that has been a challenging environment. And I also think from memory that the most difficult environment for trend following in whatever how many decades they go back is the kind of environment we've just been through, kind of a disinflationary environment. So that all ties up, so to speak. So I, I think, th and this is also why I'm kind of secretly very excited about the future of trend following, even though it might sound counterintuitive when you know how difficult it's been. But I personally believe that at some point, we will see higher inflation. At some point, we will see that reflected in interest rates. And I've also seen, and it could be the same studies, by the way, I've also seen um, these studies being done where you just look at the level of interest rates. So if you look at the level of interest rates for a certain period of time, and then you see the performance of different asset classes. And again, when you get to the higher level of interest rates, trend following tends to be the better performing asset class. But in the very low interest rate environments, it's not. Things like equities, obviously, as we know, has done really well in the latest period with zero interest rates effectively. So I think, I think Daniel, you're definitely onto something here. And as a topic, I think it's super important. And I think we all need to have some kind of opinion about this. Because one way or the other, I think the experiment that I think we are, I think we can say it is a kind of an experiment that's happening in the 
monetary side of things. At some point, it's going to show up either as inflation or, or, or some kind of lack of confidence, I think, in, in the policies. And that's going to have massive consequences for the markets. I'm post, sort of cautiously optimistic about the long-term prospects of, of trend following, being able to adapt in this case, whilst other asset classes like bonds and, and maybe even equities at some point, I think, will come short when we see this change. So yeah, interesting. And by the way, it's also kind of why I think the topic of building portfolios for different environments, as we've heard, uh, like I had when I had Jason on a few weeks ago for a Top Traders on Plot series, where he talked about building a portfolio that essentially can deal with different environments, that has also become an, in, an important topic. And I think it's also something we all need to have an opinion about and, and look into. So appreciate that. Next question is from Stasius. Stasius writes, thank you again for putting together such a great podcast. I especially appreciate how much time you dedicate to answering questions from your listeners. My question today is addressed to you, Mark, Moritz, Rob, and Jerry. I'm sure it would also be addressed to Rich going forward. I've often heard on the podcast that backtests are overrated, especially when it comes to using them as the basis for estimating the forward-looking performance of a trend trading strategy. My question is, what techniques do each of you use to assess whether you've got a strategy that really works versus simply hitting a lucky stretch within broader random walk or worse over the long term. I've been trading a personal rules-based trend-following strategy uh, for uh, of my own since October 2020. Since then, the strategy has produced a cumulative return of 15.1% with only two down months, and the maximum drawdown so far is 6.8%. Over that period, I have executed 49 trades. The strategy has never been back-tested as I don't yet have the technical know-how to do a proper backtest. Instead, this strategy represents an accumulation of some basic market behavior heuristics based on what I've heard or read about, about repeatedly over the years, plus my own customization to fit my preferred risk profile and trading the time frame. I had a little capital to put to use and I'm not afraid to that I'm not afraid to lose. And I simply wanted to let the strategy loose, loose to see what would happen. At this point, I'm wondering if I have enough data to evaluate whether my results are better than random. There are tips uh, you can share for a semi-quantitative person on how to answer this question. How do you answer this question for yourself? Is it simply, is it as simple as waiting until you've demonstrated consistent profitability over the long, uh, long enough time horizon to believe that your results are real? Actually, really good question. Appreciate that, Statius. So, uh, Moritz, how should how should we address this? Well, back tests are probably overrated. <laughs> Nevertheless, they are important. It's the question I think of how you go about back testing things and how you go about developing your trading ideas and how you want to trade. I mean, if you back test a million things, then for sure you're going to find things that will work. But the likelihood then increases substantially that you're probably curve fitting and, and over optimizing things. Nobody has ever shown you a bad back test, right? So if you just keep on going with backtesting, backtesting, backtesting until you find the historical chart that you like, then there's a very high risk that you're over-optimizing things along the way. So I guess you need to test things. I need to test things in order to see the trade statistics 
and get a perspective on the expectancy of that system. That is really what I do. I, I then don't necessarily go any further than that. I think probably Jerry on, on our show is, he said he looks at the trade stats and not even at the historical chart anymore, if I remember that correctly. So he's, he's stepping away from that quite a bit, which you know, he has all the experience. He knows he's, you know, trend-following trader. He doesn't necessarily need, need to see the charts. He knows what's happening. He, what's important is that it is a trend-following type of trading system with an entry and exit and stop loss. And I'm kind of like uh, moving in that same direction. I still look at the historical charts. You know, I run the thing with a bunch of different markets, but I really try to reduce it then and not outsmart myself and play around with it too much. Because then you're, I think, essentially you start, the data starts lying to you. You're producing something that has worked in the past that is just unlikely to work in the same way in the future. So keep it as simple and rough as you can and then, and then go with it and make sure that you keep the losses small and let all the other stuff run. I think that is, and then you're off to the races. Yeah, no, definitely. So the way I want to uh, address this question, Astasius, is two things. One, I would say... I have to say, going back in time, when when we were developing the the top traders trend following model, this is back 2007 ish, there about that time frame, and we certainly did a lot of back tests, right, to make sure that you know risk levels and and so on and so forth, to have some kind of expectation about risk and and reward and so on and so forth. But perhaps the most important thing was we were using very classical, prudent, well-known, documented methodologies in terms of building the trend-following system. All the things you hear Moritz and I and, and everyone else in the podcast talk about, we were doing exactly that. However, then after 2007, of course, we and we go live with the strategy, we run into the great financial crisis, right? And you, so you could say that nothing in the data we have just been using for doing our backtest was in exactly like what the, happened to the great financial crisis. And you can say that again with COVID last year. That data, you can't find it anywhere in the data set. I certainly remember back then that, you know, it was a bit, I mean, 2008 obviously was a great year for trend followers, but then came kind of the drought. And you started to kind of question, does it really work? And the whole thing about central bank intervention, and does that change the effectiveness of trend following? And I also remember that some of the biggest firms in our industry, uh, I'm not going to name any names, um, but some of the really the biggest managers, billions and billions of dollars under management, came to us and asked whether they could um, use the, the, the trend barometer that I publish every day because it describes the environment and it could help them with their clients to kind of visualize why the environment back then wasn't great and why they weren't making money. But having now run that model basically every single day since 2007, then you kind of see real time that, and, and Moritz would have seen the same in his trading, et cetera, et cetera, that actually the trend following behavior comes back and the performance actually doesn't look that different. It's lumpy, it goes through its drawdowns, then it has its great runs like we've just had for, you know, for, for six, seven, eight months. All of that starts to look the same, and therefore you kind of know you're doing the right thing. We really don't know if we're going to have three years of 30% plus performance or, or minus 30% in total over the next three. We don't know, but we kind of have a really good handle on the profile of the 
of what a classical trend following uh, system should look like. So I think if you don't have the capability right now to do a, a backtest, as Moritz says, pay a lot of attention to making sure that you let the winners run, you cut your losses short, and then that translate into a profile that you can essentially just look at the indices of uh, trend following to make sure, oh yeah, that's kind of in line with what you would expect from a classical trend following system. I think that's the best you can do without a backtest. But I would encourage you, even if you have to go and pay some money, if you could find someone to help you build a backtest of your strategy, because I think it goes a long way to build the confidence in running it and not get scared or bored or doubtful when you go through the difficult times, because they will come. Most of the time, we're in a drawdown, as most people know. And therefore, having the conviction, having the belief in your model, actually, I think it, it's critical to success in our industry. Otherwise, you end up buying the highs and selling the lows instead of the other way around. So that would be my view on that. But I do think it's a very valid question. So thanks for that. Final question is from Jeff. So I've shortened it a little bit. It was kind of a long one, but Jeff writes, I've been a dedicated listener to the podcast for years now. The podcast is as enjoyable today as it was when I first learned about it. Thank you for keeping up the great work. In episode 150, so that's last week's episode, minutes 37 spot 54 through around 40, the 41 minute mark, a sing, single-handedly the best explanation of trend following I think I've ever come across. Success is dominated by outliers, otherwise essential, essentially trading random outcomes, diversification seeks outliers, etc. After three, four years of reading, listening to podcasts, research, trying it myself, those three minutes summed it up pretty damn well. Then, Jeff, you go on to suggest a few guests that I appreciate that. Uh, I'm familiar with both names, of course. Um, so I will certainly take that into consideration. So much appreciated. But then I want to jump down to your actual question. And you're right. Now, a quick question. If you have any thoughts, I'd appreciate that. I'm still loading end-of-day data via Excel and cutting and pasting it into Excel, which alerts me to signals. I enter the metrics, date, open, high, low, close, volume, open, interest, one cut and paste job. Uh, and my spreadsheet calculates true range and two ATRs, then alerts me to a breakout or breakdown numbers. Pretty classical system, a pretty classic system, and certainly nothing fancy, but it works for 20 markets. I'm at a point where I'd like to move from cutting and pasting every day. What are my best options for automating my system if I'm not a coder? I mean, automating the data process, not necessarily entering the trades. And then he talks about Quandle, because I think Andrew over at the 4020 project might be using that. I'm not sure. I'm not familiar with that. And he asked whether that data source is as good as CSI. And I only know CSI, so I don't know about that. Again, I really enjoy the podcast and appreciate all the hard work over the years. I'd like to say you work hard outside of work, <laughs> but who are, are we kidding? We're just sitting around waiting for a signal most of the time. Okay, so appreciate that, Jeff. You've probably been at that point as well in your career, Moritz, where you're doing all everything in Excel and you kind of want to, you might want to stay in Excel, but you want to just make it a little bit easier day to day. Do you remember that time? Yeah, I, I do remember that time. <laughs> By the way, I'm still a huge fan of Excel. I'm using sure, Excel sure. every day. It is really the software that I'm spending most of my time with. It, it just allows you to do so many things in, in so many nice ways. But 
copying and pasting the market data into an Excel spreadsheet is not something that is a very enjoyable thing to do. It's uh, time consuming and it doesn't add value. So that really, I think, should be automated. And you can automate that in a relatively easy way. You don't have to be a super coder to do that. But inside of Excel, there is something that is called the Visual Basic App for Applications functionality, right? So it's Visual Basic Programming Language, and you can, there's probably these days tons of YouTube instruction videos on how to do that, or you can Google it. But one simple way of doing things is you download the market data, say you do that through CSI, that creates, I mean, I, I download that into a .csv file, right? So it's a comma separated values file, but that can very easily uh, be imported into Excel through a little script. So you run that, you know, VB script, you can run a Python script that will do the same thing. It really depends on how you want to do that. But it will then go through these CSV files that you've downloaded, which are updated with the latest market data that have the open, high, low, close, the date, the volume, the open interest, and all these type of nice things that you need. You run that script and it, you would program it in such a way that it puts the data exactly where you want it to be in that spreadsheet so that when you open it the next time, boom, the data is there, it's updated, and you essentially just press F9 uh, to run your trend-following model. This is how I would go about doing it if I were still running it out of a spreadsheet, which I'm no longer doing today, but you know, for some back-testing stuff and these type of things, I would that, that is my suggestion, but I would really aim to automate that so that you can free up your time in the morning or in the evening, depending on when you do that. Because even if it's just 20 markets, but copying, pasting 20 markets, opening and closing files and saving them and making sure you're not pasting them in the wrong location. I mean, it, it sounds like that takes at least 10 to 15, maybe even 20 minutes doing that every day. So five days a week, you know, that's already 100 minutes out of the window there. That would be a, a good tennis match or something else that you could do with that time. So I would try to, to reduce that. No, absolutely. Great advice, Moritz. And uh, the only thing I can add to that, Jeff, is really, again, like I mentioned before, sometimes it's worth paying a little bit of money to uh, get people to help you out if you can't do it yourself. And maybe even a platform, and this is not an endorsement, but it's just one that I've used myself for other things in the past, and that's something like Fiverr. F-I-V-R, so Fiverr.com, where you have all these providers of services, and a lot of them I do know is in Excel, and maybe they can do it for a relatively cheap price. Anyways, before we wrap up, there are a couple of points that you also mentioned, Moritz, yourself, a couple of changes to your portfolio in terms of markets you trade, and maybe some other exciting stuff. So I'll leave it to you to dive into some of those things. Yeah, just, I mean, nothing really too major, but what I've added to my portfolio are the Ethereum futures, which are traded on the CME. They've launched them a couple of months ago and they are, they're liquid, uh, they trade definitely uh, enough for my, for my sizing. And, but what I've done is because Bitcoin and Ethereum, and, and as you know, I do trade Bitcoin and Ethereum are very highly correlated these days. There's rarely a day where Bitcoin is up and, and Ethereum isn't up about the same amount. So it's a very strong positive correlation. So I've reduced my risk allocation to Bitcoin in half and I'm doing the other half now with Ethereum. So it's still the same overall exposure, but I'm cognizant of the fact that those two markets are very highly correlated. 
And previously, that wasn't really that an option for me because the Bitcoin contract is now so large, right? It's, it's essentially $200,000 worth because it's a five multiplier on that Bitcoin. But they've launched the micro Bitcoin futures contracts a couple of weeks ago. And those are also liquid. I think they trade, I don't know, between 10 and 20,000 lots a day. That is a 0.1 multiplier. So I now can be much more uh, precise in terms of my sizing and, and target the risk more, more precisely, which is something that I like. Of course, I have to trade a few more contracts and pay a little bit more commission, but it's, you know, <laughs> these commission costs in Bitcoin, that thing is at 100% volatility. It really, uh, that doesn't change the trade in the slightest. So, so that's been a change that I made in the digital asset space. A little bit more diversification, hopefully at some point when Ethereum and Bitcoin stopped behaving like they were twins. But it also allowed me to improve my uh, risk sizing, which is something that I like. And then really, I mean, stuff that I'm looking at, but what I'm, I need to be very clear about that I'm not trading that right now, but I'd, I'd really uh, like to at some point is is the dirty coal. I mean, this is I know this is very anti-ESG, very anti the environment, but when you've maybe you've noticed we've never used more coal than this year i mean coal is really I having, didn't know that. yeah it's really having a comeback one of the reasons by the way are the high natural gas prices that i've mentioned before right so in order to produce electricity a lot of electricity is produced using thermal coal especially in china and other parts of the world not necessarily here in europe even though it still exists and because everybody needs gas, everybody needs fuel to produce power, they're bidding up, they're bidding up. Coal has performed super strong. I mean, if you look at the charts, there's like Rotterdam coal, there's Newcastle coal, there's a couple of coal contracts that trade on the Singapore exchange, there's Australian thermal coal. All of that stuff is through the roof. But the contracts are, are super big, at least some of them, the ones that I think are tradable, through my broker, they are very large in terms of their size. So if you have one cold contract on, it's boom, that's a big one. So, but maybe on the next episode, I can speak about the Tungela trade that that I did as a kind of like a replacement because there's also no coal ETF anymore. There used to be uh, coal ETFs, but they no longer exist. But there, there are now a couple of companies available that are pure coal companies. I know they're dirty companies, but Anglo-American has spun off um, Tungela Resources, South African 100% pure coal mining business. And a lot of the institutional investors, of course, had to drop that stuff, right? So they were long Anglo-American. And because of that spin-off, they already, all of a sudden, got long Tungela Resources and their ESG alarm bells went on. It's like, you cannot be long that thing. That's 100% coal. So on the first day when they spun that off, that thing was just, you know, it was crashing. And But it was very clear. I mean, the coal market out there is so strong looking at the futures contracts. It was such a gap, such a disparity that was so obvious that, you know, I purchased Tungela at 130 pence. It's now at 220 pence. So it's, it's up about 100%. And that's kind of like the coal replacement trade, but it's a single stock. And and now I have a very nice trend following trade on that thing on, even though that's not part of my system. Like my system does not include equities, but I was you know, looking out for that thing and, and got the exposure kind of like in, in a side pocket. But I'm, I'm trading that in the same way that I would trade a trend following trade. It has an exit, you know, I'm way up in the money on that thing. There's a lot of give back potential on that thing too. As you know, you've spoken about that in the past episodes. So let's see what happens. And the other thing that I would really also like to add to my portfolio is, um, is the freight markets, the shipping markets. There are some products out there. I think there's one ETF out there, the bulk dry ETF, B-Dry is the ticker, but it's uh, relatively expensive in terms of the 
management fees, I think it's close to 2%. And it's a blend of things like Cape Size and Panamax. It's not clean. And it's also not very large. I think it has about 80 million or so in an AUM the last time I looked. But there are futures markets on these freight futures, but they are, you know, they don't have kind of like the same order book uh, behavior as you would see on, you know, the, the commodities that we usually trade or, or the equity indices. And so, so getting exposure there is a little bit more difficult. But I want to look into that and, and really, you know, try to get some exposure to these markets because really freight, Panamax and Cape Size type of, you know, tanker exposure. Hey, why not? That sounds to me like a independent diversifying market that I should really put into my portfolio uh, and give that a look. So that's stuff that I'm, you know, looking at. Interesting comment, Moritz, and observations, of course, and maybe all these green electrical cars aren't that green if, if, if really all the electricity, as you're saying, is to a large part now coming from yeah, coal. Still is. So that's Unintended consequences, I guess you could call it. But anyways, one thing actually, you started talking a little bit about the crypto space. And I know we kind of, you know, we don't really uh, go into the weeds of crypto on this podcast. But I couldn't help, and I just wanted to uh, maybe uh, hear your thoughts. I couldn't help noticing a recent episode actually on uh, Grant Williams' podcast where he had two people in to dis discuss uh, the whole tether situation and i mean it didn't sound very good i mean uh, based on th that analysis it sounded like that this is potentially the biggest ponzi scheme in the world I, I have no idea myself but anyways i'm sure you can find people on both sides of that argument i was just curious whether you in your when you spend time in in the crypto space whether that's a conversation, a topic that comes uh, up from time to time and where that's heading. I know there's been some, obviously, some investigations and all of that stuff, but it just seems to not quite go away. Yeah, I'm no expert in that, but I did listen to the Grant Williams episode oh, okay. and I also uh, read his um, paper on that, which is yeah. uh, called Schrodinger's Coin. So they are on the one side of the argument essentially saying that sure. Tether smells fishy. There's something wrong with it in the way that, you know, the Tether people, the Bitfinex people and their counsel and, you know, all of those people involved and close to that operation right. have behaved in the past and how they've handled the money and, and, and these type of things. So, yeah, I... Look, I'm not long of Tether. I don't have a single Tether. But yes, I mean, if, if something were to happen there, it is such a large token in terms mm. of market capitalization. It is used very widely and extensively on crypto exchanges as essentially the go-to uh, token if you want to convert crypto to uh, US dollar without going to fiat. So of course, I mean, that could have massive ramifications for Bitcoin, for Ethereum and, and all these other coins and tokens that are out there. I don't know. But no, we but don't have to know. We don't I, have to. <laughs> exactly. And look, I, I cannot do a forensic analysis of the situation there. I don't have access to the people. I also don't have the time to read all of that. I probably don't have the capability to understand all the details of that. But Looking at Bitcoin, it's north of $41,000, I think. When I looked at it last night, we had a barbecue here and it was kind of like fighting with a 40,000 level and then boom, all of a sudden it's, uh, you know, jumping $1,000 higher. I wouldn't be surprised if my trend following system got me long over that stuff again next week. There you go. That's the beauty of trend following, right? We, we'll, we'll just take it. Of course, there's then if something happens to Tether, there's a gap risk down. So... Yeah, make sure that you're sizing the thing appropriately. This is not your only trade in the portfolio. That is one out of and hopefully being many trades appropriately sized and then enjoy the ride. Very good points and vital 
to survival in these markets. In terms of performance, as I mentioned, it is month end, but of course, we only have the data for the industry up until Thursday. I think Friday, in fairness, was a down day for the industry. Not sure about the short-term traders, but certainly trend falls, I think, probably could have been a down day. Not much, necessarily. So just take these numbers I'm giving you now uh, with a little bit of grain of salt, because they will change uh, for the month of July. Anyways, beta 50 uh, was up. 1.2% for the month as of Thursday, up 7.38% for the year. Sokjian CT index up half a percent for the month, up 705 for the year. Sokjian trend index up 87 basis points, up 8.3% for the year. Sokjian short-term traders index up 78 basis points, up 1.79% for the year. As I mentioned, the trend barometer finished at 48 MSCI World up 1.72% in July, up 14.10% for the year. And the World Government Bond Index had actually a pretty strong month, up 1.47% in July. I think that's pretty much what we have for you guys this week. Next week, Jerry is back. It may be that I have to record that episode with Jerry a little bit early because of some uh, conflicts in terms of timing and, and commitments. So do send your questions as soon as you can. You can email them to info at toptradersunplugged.com and Jerry and I will do the best to answer them as best we can. Of course, you should all follow all of us on Twitter if you don't already do so. From Mart and me, thanks ever so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you next week. In the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.